It's been a joy to be with you these last few Sundays and talk about the Psalms. Uh, for some reason, in the recent years, I've just focused on the Psalms, and it's been a great privilege for me to do that. And it's also a wonderful privilege to share some of my insights with you. British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright tells the story of his father who had returned from the World War II in 1945 after spending five years in a prison camp. After his death, the father's death in 2011, as the family perused his diaries and his papers, they began to piece together some of his major life decisions. For example, the elder Mr. Wright was offered a position in the Territorial Army, that's a British thing, a, civilization, a civilian organization that supported the regular army and encouraged the new generation. At the same time, he had been approached with an offer to become a church warden in a local church. That's close to what we would call the custodian. And in that position, he would assume responsibilities for many things in the life of the church, such as ringing the church bells, handing out books to congregants, taking up the collection, and other responsibilities. He chose the job as church warden. And upon reflection, the family reckoned that his sentiments lay with Psalm 84.10. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Psalm 84 is titled, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Now, Korah was a Levitical family. That was a special family that God had set apart to do special services in the house of the Lord and in worship. And in the days of Moses, the the Korah family had responsibilities for unpacking the ark when they moved from one place to another and packing it again when they were going to move to a different site. The the, the ark of the covenant was was a prefab structure. Uh, the The Israelites got a jump on us with a prefab, a 3,000-year jump. It was designed to easily take it apart and put it back together when they got to the new place. And then when they needed to move again, the Korites were responsible for doing that task. But when David began to put the plans together for building the temple in Jerusalem, which would be a permanent structure, he assigned the Korites to temple duties. And one of them was keeping watch over the doors of the temple, making sure that they they were secure, and probably they got asked words. Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 are a good example of the kind of task that one would be uh, put to as they were going into the temple. 
But this unnamed Levite who writes Psalm 84 wrote this psalm in this psalm that he rejoiced to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, which was the best job he could think of. In fact, one day on this job was better than a thousand a thousand days in another job, any job he could think of, and especially, and this, this I think it's rather interesting, especially one of those crash and grab kinds of jobs that he called the tents of the wickedness. That was a very, a very frequent thing in those days of robbery. The description of the psalmist's faith is spread out all over this psalm. When he was away from the temple, the temple was really where he wanted to be. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. He loved singing God's praises. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. He had noticed when he was in the temple, the birds flying through the open spaces, the temple courts were open. And he was a bit jealous that he couldn't do that. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. His personal witness was that God was his strength in times of weakness, his shield in times of danger, and his son in times of darkness, and his generosity in times of need, and God, the Lord of hosts, was trustworthy. You see, the, you get the gist of the psalmist's love for his work and for his God. Yet there's another detail that I want to concentrate on in this sermon found in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, the Lord, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. What I want you to see is that the psalmist's faith is so personal. His faith, the dominant force in his life and the central drive of his soul, so much so that he describes his faith as highways. Now, ESV and NIV say highways to Zion. To Zion's not in the text. But that's what the text meant. They are on, Israel is on their way to Zion. Or the psalmist is on his way to Zion. And he expresses his faith as a highway through his heart. The Levites did not live in the temple but they generally lived close to Jerusalem so that they could get to the temple quickly and more easily without such a long journey. Actually, the Hebrew text says, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, the highways in his heart. I get that. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, the highways in his heart. The highway of faith ran right through this man's heart. That means faith was very personal. Another psalmist, and another Levite, mind you, 
in Psalm 73 says something very similar, but he puts, puts it in other words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. Talking to the Lord. I mentioned that verse a few psalms ago and suggested that Psalm 73:25 ought to be our faith motto. It doesn't mean that nothing else in this world really matters. There are a lot of things that matter that are superlative important. But God is the most important of all. The sin quo known of life, which means without God, there is nothing. We live in an American era when Christianity is under assault. Our country, as we know, was founded on the teachings of the Judeo-Christian faith, the Old and New Testaments. And so much of what we do in this country, so much of our structure reflects that faith. All men are created equal. I think the founding fathers took this idea, at least in part, from Genesis 1. And it sounds very much like Paul's statement in Galatians 3.28. There's, no, there's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. We're all created equal. Recently, the new Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, who is an evangelical Christian, came under media fire because he's a committed Christian. When someone asked him what his worldview was, he said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. This is my worldview. And he has become the target of the broadcast hosts. A few days ago, one of them quipped his, her disdain for his faith. And she said, the Bible doesn't just inform his worldview. It is his worldview. Now, this is akin to what our psalmist is saying. Our faith is like a highway that runs right through our hearts. We can't separate ourselves from it. It's the way we know, the way we walk. Nor should we want to separate ourselves from it. It's our life. It is our worldview. I have a fear that we Christians run the risk of slowly accepting the media's view of our Christian faith as secondary. Something we carry around and use if it's convenient it's intellectual baggage, after all, and we, we can even talk about it using the appropriate language, but it's more a beautiful, like a beautiful scarf we wrap around our neck and remove when it's uncomfortable. These journalists operate on the thesis that if you say something repeatedly, just keep saying it, and just keep claiming it is truth, people will begin to believe that. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be more vigilant, always on our toes, continually filtering what we hear on TV and read online and in the newspapers and read on the social media. Sadly, we can be duped into believing that our faith just plays an ornamental role in our lives. 
we can put it on and take it off at will. And how we conduct ourselves in this evil world has nothing really to do with the faith that we confess. I, I love that metaphor in the Psalms that describes God as a clothes designer. That's my way of describing it. As a clothes designer, or some of you are old enough to remember the word haberdasher, someone who makes clothes, usually for men. And God clothes us, the psalmist says, clothes us in righteousness and love. Not this psalm, but in so many of the psalms, this is the expression of faith. I think the story in Genesis 3 is the original haberdasher story. When Adam and Eve had eaten fruit from the tree of knowledge in the garden, they sewed fig leaves and made aprons to hide their nakedness. Then the Lord encounters them and makes them garments of skin and clothes them. The psalms, I think, pick up that imagery from Genesis 3 and describe God as the divine clothier, essentially telling us that the Lord is the only true, genuine clothed designer. And we ought to wear his clothes of righteousness and love with their trademark on our backs. What I want us to see from this psalm is that our faith is supposed to define who we are. To use the psalmist's beautiful metaphor, it runs right through our hearts. Interestingly, the faith of the early Christians was called the way. Christ was the way on which they walked, and Christ was the way that ran through their hearts. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he intended for us in the way we live, to become the way, the truth, and the life, to reflect it so deeply and so genuinely that there is no separation between the way, the truth, and the life, and who we really are. That's pretty comprehensive. And the Lord Jesus added the fine detail, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is the point at which even some evangelicals begin to get nervous. I'll leave it up to God to determine whether or not we have walked that exclusive way and made him our truth and our life. But that's what he intends. And I would want to be trying out, I would not want to be trying out some other way, some other way just as an experiment or just because the American culture has come to ridicule those of us who believe Jesus is the only way to God. N.T. Wright, in another one of his books, says that God has chosen to recreate the world from within. And we see the evidence of that in this psalm. After the psalmist says, in whose heart are the ways to Zion, or in whose heart are the ways. That's all the Hebrew says. He immediately announces, as they go through the valley of Baca, 
They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now, we don't know geographically where the valley of Baca was. It was somewhere on their way to Jerusalem. There have been guesses. It was someplace that they would perhaps camp out on their way to the holy city. But I don't think it's a a mistake or just a coincidence that it's called the Valley of Baca. Baca means weeping. These pilgrims through whose hearts ran the road to Zion, these pilgrims made a difference in their world. They transformed the valley of weeping into a valley of fresh springs of water. Their destination, Zion, was always on their minds. Their commitment to the faith was an internal reality from inside out, E.T. Wright says. That's the way God is going to change the world. Their faith was not peripheral, as our culture wants ours to be. And as they traveled toward their destination, they transformed the weary landscape of their world into an oasis. John Calvin is attributed for the description of the church as a man with a heavy burden on his back, tears flowing down his cheeks as he walked through this world of despair and trouble. That's John Calvin's description of the church. That's what we must be as God's church. So here in Psalm 84, we have the shape of our character. Our faith is internal. Our faith is who we are. And we have the task of proclaiming the gospel as we travel down this road. It's the road we walk on to live out the gospel of Christ, changing our world, transforming the valley of Baca into a valley of joy. And it's also the road of the gospel of Christ that runs through our hearts. It's who we are. And it assigns us the task of transforming the landscape of this world we travel through. What a beautiful metaphor this is. And one that we need to hold very close to our hearts and not be changed in our thinking about our faith and its, its place in our lives, its power in our lives, this centrality of our faith in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've provided a road for us to travel which becomes, by your grace, the way of life. And we thank you that Our Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to become more and more the the genuine representative of that truth in this world. As we travel through it, travel down the road, and as we become more and more like Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.